0: The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, climate change is raising sea levels, and soon low-lying coastal areas will be underwater. But the most severe threat, the brunt of the suffering, is coming first to low-lying islands around the world, even though they are the least responsible for global warming. Now we have a remarkable new atlas of islands in a rising ocean. It's called sea Change, and we'll speak with the author, Christina Gerhardt, later in the show. But first, the polls about the 2024 election are not good. D.D. Guttenplan will talk about what Joe Biden needs to do differently in a minute. Joe Biden is not looking good in the polls. That should be a wake-up call. If he's not going to step aside, he needs to do something different and do it now. That's what D.D. Guttenplan says. He's editor of The Nation, and his books include American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, The Nation, A Biography, and The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. We reached him today in Brooklyn. Don, welcome back.
1: Thanks, John.
0: Well, just how bad are Biden's approval ratings since he announced he would run for a second term?
1: Well, the Real Clear Politics average of recent polls gives him just a 41.4% approval rating, and that's against 53.8% of likely voters who disapprove of the president.
0: That 41% is basically unchanged for Biden for the last year, and it's what Trump's average approval rating was although Trump ended up at 34% that was after the January 6th insurrection it's easy for people to say they aren't enthusiastic about Biden but in November 2024 they'll have to choose between Biden and Trump or or maybe Ron DeSantis what do people tell pollsters now about how they will vote next year
1: well that's even more worrying because the overall Real Clear Politics average of recent polls currently has Biden behind Trump by 1.4 points, while a mid May Harvard Harris survey put the president down by seven points against Trump. And an early May ABC News poll had Governor DeSantis leading Biden by five points. Mm. What John Nichols and I are arguing in our editorial is that while a Rose Garden strategy might work, for someone who's way ahead, the president is behind. And it's these, this strategy is not going to work.
0: To me, the most ominous poll results um, that you and John Nichols cite are about what Democrats say when asked if they want Biden to run. These are polls conducted after he announced that he
1: was running. And what did the Democrats say? And even after he announced more than half, 52% of Democrats for an AP poll, said they'd still prefer he didn't run, while only 25% of Democrats under the age of 45 said they would definitely back him in 2024. Remember, that's 25% of young Democrats.
0: So whichever poll you look at, Biden is not doing well, and in some he's doing terribly. I think the most optimistic thing you could say right now is that if everything goes well for Biden, the 2024 election will still be a close one, just like 2020 and 2016 and 2012 and 2000. So um, the plan for Biden's campaign right now is to run in the first primary, which is going to be South Carolina. That's something new. Remind us why they changed the order of the primaries.
1: Well, (laughs) they changed the order of the primaries, I suppose because Biden owed it to his ally, James Clyburn, uh, you know, who runs the Democratic Party in South Carolina, and which was, of course, readers and listeners will remember the primary that catapulted Biden from a fourth place finisher in 2020 into the front runner. So, you know, Biden owes Clyburn. He also owes African-American voters. And those are perfectly good debts, which he should make good on. But the problem is that South Carolina, for the foreseeable future, is a reliably Republican state. So the ability to win among Democrats in South Carolina is of no use in a general election. And it also keeps Biden out of states, in particular New Hampshire, um, which are genuine swing states. If George Bush had lost New Hampshire to Al Gore, Al Gore would have been president and there would have been no shenanigans in Florida. So, you know, the idea that you want to ditch a contested primary for a coronation in a state that doesn't matter makes increasingly less sense. Again, these are decisions that wouldn't necessarily be worth quibbling with if Biden were 10 points ahead of a twice impeached, still indicted with more indictments to come in, you know, former president. I mean, the fact that this is going to be a heart attack election, again, on current form, is incredibly worrying.
0: And in addition to changing the schedule of the primaries, the Democratic National Committee has made another change. They're not scheduling, scheduling any primary debates either. Um, how much of a problem
1: is that? Well, John and I think that's a big problem for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's Extremely unlikely. I would say a safe bet and one you can go to sleep on that neither Robert F. Kennedy Jr. nor Marianne Williamson would beat Biden, even in New Hampshire, um, where Kennedy has a little bit of a home field of advantage, but not showing up, not having debates and not putting Biden's case to the people who are interested or who have an open mind, who are still who are still making up their mind who to vote for. Because after all, the the audience for all these things isn't just primary voters in that state. They're just ceding the spotlight to the Republicans. The only people who are going to be making news about a presidential election in 2024, if Biden sticks to this strategy, are Republicans. So we're going to be hearing a whole lot about DeSantis. We're going to be hearing a whole lot about Trump. Uh, Those of us on the left who care about such things are going to be hearing about how Trump would pull back from the increasing militarization uh, in Europe and from, you know, not just Ukraine, but China and other places where people who worry about war and peace are worried because it's beginning to look like the two peace candidates in 2024 are going to be Robert Kennedy Jr. and Donald Trump. (laughs) And that is not a good thing for Joe Biden. So Biden needs to be out there with all of the possible protest candidates running who are running against him or at least the main ones um, who are drawing, you know, roughly 25% together in nationwide polls, drawing the contrast between them and him and making the case why the protest vote you think is inexpensive and worth casting just to show you're disappointed or pissed off would be a mistake. He needs to make that case energetically and repeatedly.
0: You and John Nichols write in Donation Editorial, Biden's bid is long on avoidance and painfully short on vision. Let's talk about the vision for uh, a minute. What What is to be done about the vision?
1: Do we have to talk about the vision, John? <laughs> when we wrote this editorial, the the deficit debt ceiling deal hadn't been cut yet. So You could still maintain some illusions about Biden's vision uh, and that it had that it went beyond bipartisanship and, you know, responsible deficit reduction. But it's it's pretty hard to hold on to that illusion today. And I would say that, you know, the vision gap is important. I suppose the shortest way to 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 indicate what Biden ought to do is he ought to go back to running on the 2020 platform that he borrowed with permission from Bernie Sanders and really meaning it.
0: The vision side is one part of it. The other part of your statement is Biden's bid is long on avoidance. Uh, Biden's handlers have not allowed him to appear in open forums with the press or or the public, and that's why people say they think he's too old. Uh, we think he should take questions from the press. He should do town halls. He should he should do everything that candidates usually do. And obviously, his handlers are afraid that he'll do badly at that. And he only needs to have one gaffe, one slip, one forgetful moment, and that will be in a thousand TV ads that we'll get to see every week until for for a year. But my worry is. We know what we want Biden to do, but could it be that his handlers know something that we don't know, that his handlers are right, that it's too risky for him to do this?
1: Those are two questions, John. Um, Might his handlers know something that we don't know? Of course they might. They probably do. But if what they know is that Biden can't deal with spontaneous questions, he can't deal with unscripted interactions with the public, then he should step aside. Uh, because he's not capable of really being president, and we can't afford another second Reagan term in Democratic clothing. All that will do is discredit the Democratic brand and party for a generation, and 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 turn the country over to the Republicans for the you know for the next decade. And also, I, I you know I'm not Joe Biden's biggest fan, but I have to say that he has never shown any sign of not being able to manage spontaneous interactions. I think he's actually at his best in short give and take. Uh, you know, it's when he has to pile clause upon clause that he trips over them. Um, so I think they're, if they don't know anything we don't we don't know, then I think they're mistaken in defending him or protecting him or screening him. And if they do know something we don't know, then they'd better tell us. And they better tell us while it's time to make a change.
0: Well, it's still fifteen months before the Democratic National Convention and. Eight months before the first primary, is that enough time if Biden can't or, or won't do what needs to be done? Is that enough time to find a different candidate?
1: Yeah, it's still time to file for primaries. It's still time to wage a campaign. I mean, the it's not the it's not the logistics that are the problem, it's loyalty and the fact that Biden has very assiduously and intelligently sewn up. Um, you know, almost all of his potential challengers on the left uh, and even in the center as surrogates. So, you know, unless Biden gives a clear signal, which he shows no sign of doing and which, you know, as we say in our article, someone who's imagined he should be president since the 1980s, is could not run for re-election just because the polls are down. Um, so, I, you know, I expect Biden to run for re-election, but... You know, if something happens or if, for example, you know, DeSantis has a genuine boom as opposed to the bust he's been so far, because at the moment, the Democratic National Party's sole argument is Biden beat Trump. Biden will beat Trump. That may be true, but that depends on it being Trump. And also it depends on the polls not being wrong about who would win in that two person contest.
0: Biden's bid for reelection is long on avoidance and painfully short on vision. That's what D.D. Guttenplan and John Nichols say in their editorial, Biden must remake his candidacy. You can read it at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: Climate change is raising sea levels, and soon low-lying coastal areas will be underwater in the United States, starting with Miami, New Orleans, and Houston, and elsewhere in the world, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Mumbai. But the most severe threat, the brunt of the suffering, is coming first to low-lying islands around the world, even though they are the least responsible for global warming. And now we have a remarkable book about what we're losing. It's called Sea Change. It's an atlas, a book of maps of the present and the future. But because we're losing not only land but also people, wildlife, fresh water, landscapes, and cultures, this is also a book of poetry, art, and essays by people who live in island nations. The author is Christina Gerhardt. She teaches at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She's a senior fellow at UC Berkeley, and she's been the Baron Visiting Professor of Environment and the Humanities at Princeton. Her environmental journalism has been published in The Guardian, The Progressive, The Washington Monthly, and The Nation. We reached her today in San Francisco. Tina Gerhart, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks, it's great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, we're talking today about huge islands like Greenland, but also tiny remote islands that we've barely heard of, Tuvalu, Tonga, the marshalls and islands we hear about all the time, the Bahamas, Jamaica, Cuba, Puerto Rico. People think of sea level rise as something like the water in a bathtub rising as it fills, but that's not really the way it works with climate change. And that's why mapping sea level rise is a challenge. Mostly the maps in your book show what islands will look like in 2050 and 2100. Your maps show what will be gone and what will remain of the land area. But that's not just a matter of elevation, of height above sea level. Please explain.
2: I talked to my colleague at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Chip Fletcher, who's an oceanographer early on in this project, and he said, you know what? One of the common misconceptions people have about sea level rise is that it's a line and that it's only coming at you from the coastline. And then he went on to explain the bathtub model. If you're thinking about sea level rise as being in a bathtub and that line going up, you're not tracking a couple of things. First off, a huge issue with sea level rise is a zone of inundations, being intermittently flooded and flooded often enough that that life basically becomes untenable. The other thing that's so important with regard to the bathtub model, you mentioned at the top, sea level rise is not a story about water. It's a story about geology. You need to look at the geology of the island. And so the Bahamas is an important example because like its neighboring Florida, it consists of of limestone, which I refer to as the Swiss cheese of geology. It's porous. It not only allows water to seep up from underneath, it actually soaks up the water. And Christina Hill, a colleague here at UC Berkeley, has done a lot of work about how important water coming up from underneath is.
0: You start with Greenland, the world's largest island in the world's smallest ocean. You went to Greenland. Did you fly in?
2: we arrived by a boat And you hear this gentle popping sound from a distance. And as you get closer, it's sort of like ice cubes being dropped in a glass of of warm liquid. They start crackling as the air bubbles escape and they're melting. And then the noise becomes larger and larger. So it's the symphony that just escalates into groaning. It's like the sound of a whale or something like that. There's this rumble, this roar as the water is rushing. There's this clap and slap sound as the ice caves uh, start to, to calve off and crash into the sea with this thunderous noise. So I start with Greenland because it is the source of sea level rise. So when these glaciers I just described start to melt, they affect islands halfway around the globe. For example, the Republic of Marshall Islands that you mentioned.
0: It rained in Greenland, you report, in 2021. How much did it rain?
2: No one knows how much it rained on Greenland because there's no rain gauges on Greenland.
0: You tell the fascinating stor- story of the Inuit maps of the coastline of Greenland. They are carved wooden relief maps. Amazing. Tell us about them.
2: They are basically three-dimensional and they, they are carved out of wood and they document the coastline. But what's most important about them is is that the stories that were relayed by the elders to younger people going out along the coastline was what mattered most. So it was a tool intended to help encourage their memory or memorizing of the coastline. The map itself isn't what mattered. So when we think about walking, you know, we're in a new neighborhood, we pull out our phone, we're on Google Maps, we're trying to figure out how to get there. That map is our guide, right? Or if, you know, we're, we're voyaging, we might still be old-fashioned and have paper maps. That's the opposite of how these maps were used. They're support devices, they're mnemonic devices that help aid memory. And what most matters is the oral stories and the memorizing of the details. So you could throw the map aside and hopefully have it, in, you know, in your, in your mind and in your body.
0: You said that when the glaciers melt in Greenland, the places that are flooded include the Marshall Islands on the other side of the world in the South Pacific. The Marshalls are about six and a half feet above sea level right now. The whole thing will probably be underwater in the next 20 to 50 years. 42,000 people, something like that, live there this year. They have no higher ground where they can find refuge. The Marshallese also have maps. They are world-famous navigators of the South Pacific. I learned they have something called stick charts that they used to navigate the Pacific Ocean.
2: Right. Just to back up, they're one of the four island nations most at risk. The other ones are Kiribati and Tuvalu in the Pacific, and then the Maldives in the Indian Ocean. Now, these stick charts that you mentioned are these incredibly beautiful maps that the Marshallese have developed a lot of uh, islanders in the Pacific are incredible navigators. When uh, people who were colonizing from the north and the west, mainly from Europe, came to the Pacific, they were they were gobsmacked to put it in British, British terms by the fact that these navigators could travel without the use of things like magnetic compasses, latitude, longitude, etc. So, what the stick charts in particular. Um, are used to navigate the Pacific Ocean. They're made of palm ribs and sticks that are bound by coconut fiber. And what they, what they document are swells. Swells are are longer than waves and they're deeper than waves. And importantly, if they bounce around, if they move, if they hit an island, they refract in a different way because of that interruption of their flow. And so having a stick chart that documents the swells, again, this is a mnemonic tool, you have to commit this to memory, means that you are reading the waves, you're reading the swells, you're reading the water, basically, And then I have a whole section about how they're reading clouds. They're these furry um, eyebrows that sort of stick up like like arched, you know, pointing to the top, sort of like a, a peak of a mountain. And when you see those on the horizon, even if you can't see an island, you know that there's an island underneath because that's why those eyebrows are there. So there's really an incredible ability to read water, to read clouds and to read birds that are an important part of oceanic navigation. So the facts
0: you map in sea change are heartbreaking, but the issue for you is not only what is being lost, but what can be saved and how. Uh, What are some of your favorite examples of that?
2: Yeah, I center uh, predominantly but not exclusively Black and Indigenous Islander voices because I wanted to hear the story of Islanders told from their vantage point both about the impacts of sea level rise, the solutions to it, which are often solutions they themselves are putting forward, lacking international support of various sorts, um, the engineering knowledge or or funding. But um, one of the things I also talk about is their history and their culture. So I refer to sea change as a symphony. It weaves together, as you mentioned, art, maps, poems, the texts uh, that I wrote, scientific illustrations. So it's really polyvocal or polyphonic. And the reason I think it's important to include the history and the culture is because I think we have enough studies to indicate that sea level rise is an issue. The climate crisis is an issue. People don't really connect with data sets. I really think science is important. I don't want to be you know, misunderstood as saying it's unimportant. But the way that we really connect or care or empathize is to hear the stories from islanders about their islands. And so a couple of things that struck me coming back to your question, there's a remarkable affinity that islanders feel among themselves. When I moved to Hawaii, you mentioned I teach there a decade ago to take up the teaching position. I quickly noticed an affinity that people in Hawaii feel with people of the Philippines, with people of Guam, and then with people further afield in the Caribbean from Cuba and from Puerto Rico. And I was a little surprised by that. And then the reason when you think about it, is simple. Those are all island territories that were ceded to the U.S. when the U.S. won the Spanish U.S. war. And so colonialism is a thread that runs through my book because it structures, it structures the situation of islands and a lot of the inequities that islanders are forced to live with.
0: Some of the uh, effects of that colonialism uh, occurred, at least in my, my lifetime, notably in the Marshall Islands. And it's the reason why a third of the Marshall Islands population has moved to the United States, mostly to Hawaii, but also for some reason to Arkansas. The United States admits the Marshallese not as climate refugees, but in compensation. In compensation for what?
2: because the US detonated a series of nuclear bombs in the Pacific specifically at Marshall in the Marshall Islands in the 40s and in the 50s. They're not the only nation that did this. France participated in these tests too. But as a result of these tests, there's a very high percentage of cancer rates in the Marshall Islands.
0: 43 nuclear tests conducted That's by right. the United States 1948 to 1958. And closer to home, the United States, I I learned from your Seat Change book, now has its own climate refugees. The first lived on an island near New Orleans, the Ile de Jean Charles. What is happening there?
2: Right. So Ile de Jean Charles shrunk by an incredible 98%. So the amount of land loss there is just remarkable. And I remember when I was working on the map for Ile de Jean, Charles, which, you know, maybe you have pulled up in front of you, but the cartographer, you mentioned earlier, right, that the maps on, um, in sea change show the situation of the island currently, then in 2050 with sea level rise impacting it, and then by the end of the century, 2100. So I had the cartographer, Molly Roy, create the third panel for 2100 is just blue. And she was trying to figure out what her work was, right? <laughs> like, what is she supposed to do? And I said, you're literally supposed to just give the viewer a blue slide to indicate that Ile de Jean Charles will very likely be gone by the end of the century. So it's already lost 98% of its land mass. And this is due to both um, sea level rise and also eroding coastlines. They've been eroding since about 1950.
0: I learned from your book that the Ile de Jean Charles is not only suffering from sea level rise, but from sinking, from subsidence, which is happening in other places, in the Solomons, in Samoa, in Manhattan, something else to worry about. Why is that happening?
2: It's happening because of the amount of groundwater and even more so the amount of oil that has been pulled out. So when you pull all of these fluids out of the soil, the soil then compacts, right? Um, And it's disproportionately hitting the Gulf of Mexico and the East Coast. But the other reason is due to uh, shifts in tectonic plates. So basically, thousands of, of, of years ago, with the glaciers retreating, a long story short is that the island bulbed up a little bit, and now that land is starting to slowly sink into place again.
0: I understand the United States government awarded $48 million to resettle the residents of the Ile de Saint-Charles, but the residents have voted against resettlement twice.
2: Who are they, and and how do you explain their vote? The inhabitants of Ile de Jean Charles are from three different indigenous tribes um, the Biloxi, the Chittimacha, and the Choctaw tribes. They moved into the area to avoid the forced displacement of indigenous people uh, created by the 1830 Indian Removal Act. And so they decided not to move where people were forcibly relocated and moved instead to Ile de Jean Charles around them, where they've been living since. Um, They voted against because the new areas that that were created for them to live in were initially intended only for them to be living in and then were opened up for other people to also live in. So that was a huge reason why. And then it wasn't clear that the entire tribe or group of people who were living on Ile de Jean Charles would be able to live in this newly created area. So it's about that, you know, cohesion of resettlement that was really the issue. Finally, why is it important
0: to make islands around the globe visible and the plight of their people clear and relevant to everyone?
2: We're all connected. um, And I think that's really important to keep in mind. An injury to one is an injury to all, as numerous people have put it, right? So see, and this is why I start with Greenland. And I close that chapter on Greenland talking about the impact on the Marshall Islands, which doesn't come up until halfway through the book. Because the melting Greenland is affecting the inhabitants of Marshall Islands, as you mentioned, because we, if we are continental land dwellers listening to this program, if uh, we are the source of historically the largest emissions around the world. So we are responsible for creating the climate crisis. I believe in collective solutions, meaning political or divest from fossil fuels or, you know, encourage our politicians to not subsidize them or vote out of office politicians who do subsidize them, etc. I encourage those kinds of actions more than individualized ones. I do think any level of action is better than inaction. So this is why I think we on the mainland US, if that's where your listeners are based, uh, should care about this story. It really is a story about everyone. Uh, you also mentioned the fact that you know, 40% of, of the U.S. Uh, is c- living along coastlines, translated to different numbers, that's 13 million people. So what happens on islands is also a harbinger of the fate that awaits a lot of people living in coastal communities in the U.S.
0: Rebecca Solnit calls the Sea Change Atlas by Christina Gerhardt stunning. Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker calls it at once lyrical and clear-sighted. Tina, Thank you for this amazing book. And thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thanks for having me on, John. It's been wonderful to be with you.
0: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
1: Tracksmith, my favorite running brand, has opened its first New York City store at 147 Wythe Avenue in Brooklyn. If you're a runner or anyone who appreciates first-class athletic gear, this is the best news ever. Amazing trainers, running apparel designed by real runners, all with the finest material and classic style. I'm wearing, as I'm reading this, no fewer than three Tracksmith pieces. You can shop their summer collection at 147 Wythe Avenue or shop online at tracksmith.com.